Welcome to The Lisa Show. USA Today reported a new Gallup survey that found in Gen Z alone, one in six individuals identify as LGBTQ+. As our society evolves to be more loving towards and understanding of LGBTQ plus individuals, many parents still struggle to know how to respond when their child comes out to them. Are you ready to have a conversation with your child about their sexuality? What should you do? What should you not do if your child comes out to you? Well, Dr. Ben Shalati is a professor and administrator at BYU and the co-host of the famous podcast, Questions from the Closet. He's joining us today to talk about how parents can have safe and constructive conversations when their kids come out to them. Welcome, Ben. Happy to be here. So uh, how... If, if every one of these situations is going to be so individual, but in general, how can parents uh, really prepare to talk about and talk with their children about sexuality? Yeah, I would say the most important thing is to educate themselves, like hear stories of LGBTQ individuals, have LGBTQ friends and really understand them. And so if you understand what it's like to be LGBTQ uh, just in broader society, then when your children come out, you'll be more prepared to have that conversation. So how how might we do that? Yeah, I think that there are lots of great ways. First of all, talking to the people that we know and getting to know them, uh, you know, asking for consent to ask questions about someone's life and experience, I think is always a good thing. Uh, and then reading, you know, blogs, listening to podcasts, uh, watching movies, those kinds of things are, are good ways. Uh, reading books are good ways to educate people. Now, there are some people that will hear that and are like, well, yes, I recognize the importance of this. This was not ever taught to me. I never had those conversations with my parents or it's just something that that is difficult for me to have a conversation around sexuality in general, you know, much less – you know, LGBTQ, right? So there, there becomes this sort of anxiousness that just instantly surrounds any time we talk about sexuality. How do we sort of break past those barriers to open it up to this conversation? Yeah. So I came out to my parents when I was 23 years old, and I knew they were going to be loving and kind when I came out to them. Uh, they didn't respond the best. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, they, they both told me they loved me. My mom asked me if I thought it was a phase, and I said, I hope so. And my dad said, well, you're probably better off being single because being married is hard. Yeah. You know, typical. <laughs> <laughs> things could be worse. Be grateful for what you got. And those weren't the right responses. Yeah. Um, but they kept bringing up the conversation, you know, about uh, every once in a while they'd say, so how's that whole same sex attraction thing going? Mm-hmm. And they just opened the door for me to talk if I wanted to talk, but I didn't want to. Mm-hmm. And then seven years later, when I was 30, I was ready to talk. Mm-hmm. And I just unloaded everything onto them, just, just years of experiences. And they just listened and finally understood what my life had been like. And that's when, that's when my mom said, Ben, if you need to marry a man, you and he will always be part of our family. Mm, mm. And she said, we're not just on your side, we're with you 100%, whatever you choose. So you mentioned that maybe the, those responses that they had initially were not the best. Tell me why, because it, it seems like it could be a lot worse, but why they weren't the best and what people could know to be better when they're having these conversations with their kids. Yeah. So what my dad tried to do was he tried to just kind of minimize the situation where I was like coming to him in crisis and mm-hmm. he said, oh, well, be grateful for what you have. Yeah. <laughs> when I really needed him to say, that sounds tough. Tell me what's been happening. Mm-hmm. And uh, too many parents make it about them when their child comes out. And it's not about you. It's about your child and their experience. So I would say if a child comes out, ask a grand tour question. You could call it like, what has this experience been like for you? Mm-hmm. How have these feelings affected your life? How can we help? And then just listen and see where they take the conversation and then ask follow-up questions. You, you mentioned that uh, the parents make it about themselves. Do you, do you hear or do you experience or have others experienced where the parents feel like it on some level is a failure? Uh, on their behalf? 100%. That happens a lot. Mm. And what I would say to parents is, if your kid comes out to you, this isn't bad news. Like, this isn't a tragedy. It's a good thing that, you're, that your kid trusts you enough to share this intimate part of themselves with you. So for those that maybe that that is a different, maybe they never have had someone that's LGBTQ in their family, this is a new experience. Uh, they maybe have even had that initial conversation, are hearing this and recognize, boy, I have done this wrong. 
Is it too late? Can there be reparations made? You will always do things wrong. <laughs> you know, when, when you're having these conversations, I used to be a Spanish teacher. Uh-huh. And when you are learning a language, you make all kinds of mistakes. You make a fool of yourself all the time. And when you have a conversation you never had before, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to say the wrong thing. And you might even offend your kid. But that's okay because that conversation is not the last conversation. And one thing that parents need to realize is your kid has been thinking about this for a long time, for months, if not years, and you haven't been. And so they're going to be at a very different place. So let them take you along. And as you, and I would even say, hey, son, daughter, you know, loved one, uh, I might say the wrong thing and I'm sorry. And just acknowledge that you're going to say the wrong thing. And then when you do, ap- apologize and, and do better as you learn more. We're talking with uh, Ben Shalati about parenting LGBTQ youth with love and, and being able to have those conversations uh, as they uh, trust you and uh, are willing to have those conversations with you. You, you often hear, and, and you talked about how, um, you know, your, your dad and your mom's response was not the best, but also not the worst. You've heard experiences where someone will come out to their family and they will say something like, not in this house you aren't, or, you know... There, something much more vile than that. In, in those cases, how if that if that is sort of our innate response, we love that that person, but like we we don't know how to to come to grips with that. How do we wrestle with that but still be supportive? Yeah, I think the most important thing is to you know express an increase of love to your to your child after they come out to you mm-hmm. or after they share any kind of inkling that they might be LGBTQ plus, uh, share an increase of love and an increase in understanding. And, you know, uh, of course, I can't imagine a situation where it would be okay to kick a, to kick a teen out of your house. Ever. Um, and so, uh, because teens are going to go where they feel welcomed and loved, and if they don't feel welcomed and loved in your house, then they're going to go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And so I would say make sure that your home is a safe place and just, just you know, ask them questions. Really sit down, have some good conversations, and, and acknowledge that, that you're learning. You mentioned earlier the the asking for consent to ask further questions. What does that sound like? Yeah, uh, it just sounds like thank you so much for sharing this with me. Like thank you for telling me that you're gay or, or trans. I, I really appreciate that. Is it okay if I ask you some some questions? Hmm. That's all it takes. Just is it okay if I ask you some questions? Because it can be exhausting to be the educator. Yeah. Um, and so if you if you ask for their consent, most people are going to be okay to to talk. But sometimes it might not be the right time. Sometimes they've had a tough day or they don't really want to be someone who educates. You know, there are times in my life where I just need to talk to someone else who has a similar experience to me. Mm -hmm. I don't want to explain my life to someone who doesn't get it. Does it differ as we uh, branch this out to extended family? Say we have, it's our niece or nephew or a cousin. Is it is the same kind of discussion? You know, it, these these things, when it, when it kind of comes through the family, it's like, oh, did you hear? And then you want to be an advocate. You want to be supportive. At, at that point, do you wait for that person to approach you and come out to you? Or do you say, hey, I heard, you know, this from your mom or your dad, and I want to let you know that I'm an advocate or an ally for you? Yeah, and that's going to depend on each situation uniquely. Um, I would say more often than not, what happens is someone comes out, and then everyone knows, and then there's kind of like a don't ask, don't tell policy, and no one ever talks about it. And and the straight members are waiting for the gay members to say something, and the gay members are waiting for the straight members to say something, and nothing ever happens. Mm -hmm. So I I think if you're waiting for someone to have the conversation to say, I would say, if there's something I want to know, if there's something I want to express, just express it. And uh, it's not if 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 their orientation is still a secret and they're not out publicly, mm-hmm. then I would wait for them to tell you. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've heard through gossip, then that's probably not the right thing to bring up. What what is the harm in the one and done conversation? Like if someone comes out and you respond lovingly and and that's sort of it, but then it it has never come back. Is there any harm in that? Uh, not necessarily. I, I think it depends on, on each situation. But for the most part, when when straight members are talking to, to LGBTQ members of the family, um, they will have more questions and, and thoughts and, and maybe concerns or ideas. And so if you're still thinking and pondering about, you know, their experience, uh, then that conversation is not done. You have more you want to you want to learn and ask. And so I'd say it's okay to have those conversations again, once again, like as long as you're asking for their consent and it's something that they're willing to talk about. And when I first came out, there were so many things I wanted to talk about and mm-hmm. so many things I wanted to explore. And it was always awkward for me to bring it up. So if someone brought it up, it was actually quite 
quite a gift to me. Mm. And, you know, society is changing and there there are things that happen in the news and, and in politics and in religion. And so LGBTQ people often want to talk about those things and, and express their opinions and, and want to help people understand. And so I, I, I think the one and done conversation is rarely how it actually is. Uh, you bring up the topic of religion and, you know, uh, in various um, forms of religion, the the idea of LGBTQ is not necessarily received as welcomely as, as in others. And uh, if a family is a particular religious tradition and, you know, someone says, hey, I'm LGBTQ plus, and that sort of doesn't fit, or there it's you know sort of a rocky kind of fit. How how do parents navigate that with their their children? Yeah, and once again, that's going to depend on the unique family situation. But you know, when all the religions I know, there's mm-hmm. an extreme value placed on the worth of each individual. Yeah, and so this person is so much more than their orientation. And if you are struggling with their orientation, focus on the things about them that you do love, that are good, that are congruent with what you believe. And if you can focus on that, because all of us in the end, you know, all of us are imperfect. None of us live up to uh, the the values of our religion or our our, our spirituality 100%. All of us mm-hmm. fail. Mm-hmm. And so if we are looking at someone who's not living up to our values, but then not looking at how we're, we aren't living up to our own values, then we're just being hypocritical. Mm-hmm. And so I would say look for the good and uh, and and just try and learn from them. Yeah. And I think fundamentally within most of those same things that that simple principle of love one, love one another and then like I I worry about the other ones once I get that done right and I'm not doing that perfectly so like a constant sort of attempt at, at trying to to love one another. Definitely. Uh, the idea of being an ally uh as opposed to an advocate are they the same thing? You know, I think they can be. Uh you know, allyship can look different to different kinds of people. Uh, to me, the allies that have been the most important to me are ones who really try and listen and learn and love me and mm-hmm. try and understand my story and then elevate my story and the stories of others. And so I think that's that's a great way to, to, to be an ally. Just just listen and then share what you learn mm-hmm. uh, with, with the people in your around, around you in organic ways. Mm-hmm. And I think an advocate has more of a, of a forward-facing role, someone who, who's maybe trying to promote positive change. And so I think uh, an advocate would definitely be an ally. But I think to me, I mean, uh, this could be different to different people, but an advocate sounds a little more uh, forward facing, like mm-hmm. working for positive change. If if we have suspicion, and I and I don't want to tread too much down this this road, but we, we think that someone may be LGBTQ plus and we want to let them know that it's safe, but maybe they aren't ready to come out. How do you navigate that kind of conversation? Yeah, I think it's mostly inappropriate to ask someone if they are LGBTQ plus. Yeah. Um, that is that's their timing and that's up to them when, mm-hmm. when they are prepared and ready. Uh, sometimes it, it's helpful. So I would say it, it, it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes it's better to ask someone, but usually that's not the case. So I'd say the most important thing to do is to just signal to your loved ones that you're a safe person. Mm. And you can do that by talking about LGBTQ plus people in positive ways, uh, by talking about books you've read or shows you've watched or, or friends in your life. And as you demonstrate that you are a positive person, uh, then they're more likely to come out to you. And the other thing I would say is vulnerability breeds vulnerability. So if you are open about what's going on in your life, people are more likely to be vulnerable about what's going on in theirs. Uh, a, a great way that I learned, and we've sort of hit on several of these things, but I would be curious if there are other ones, uh, what not to do. <laughs> I, I'm really good at, at being able to sort of lock in on those things. All right, if I ever have this instance where someone comes out to me or where I can be supportive, here are the things that I should not do. What beyond what we've already talked about should we avoid or stay away from? Yeah, when someone comes out, you don't say, "Oh, I knew" or "I suspected." <laughs> you know that that that's not the no. right thing to say uh, because usually they've been trying to hide. And so if if you're saying, "Oh, I knew," that's kind of terrifying mm-hmm. to to a lot of people who who are new to coming out. So I, I would say that that that's one of the most important things. Uh, the other thing is 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 listen, don't tell. You know, don't tell them things. Don't talk about your experiences. This is if someone comes out to you, this is their time to talk. So I would mm. say just ask questions. So so listen, don't tell. Interesting. Nothing else. Any any other maybe pros that you would say we have mentioned, you know, be overwhelming with love. But are there other things that we should be doing that we haven't mentioned? Yeah, um, I, I would say the most important pro. Once again, I'm going to beat this like a dead horse, but just just get to know their experience, get to mm-hmm. know their experience organically. And there's a lot of power in proximity, you know, getting close to people who are different. And so if we can really walk in their shoes and try and understand life from their point of view, that's when those relationships are really going to strengthen.
Uh, you mentioned uh, walking in their shoes, and you've written a book. I don't know if you cleverly worked in the title of your book or not. Uh, it's called A Walk in My Shoes. What's that all about? Yeah, so I wrote a book uh, uh, mainly for straight members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that addresses 16 questions I'm often asked as a gay Latter-day Saint. And I wrote it so that uh, I get these questions all the time. I thought, well, if I can just write a book where people can understand my experience. I also have like a really nice tidy story mm-hmm. uh, for, for members of my church to, to digest. So that, well, if they can hear my nice, tidy story, and then they can take what they've learned and then go and talk to their LGBTQ loved ones. That was the whole point of it. So it's 16 questions. Do you find yourself, if people ask you one of those questions now, for you to just be like, read my book. I already answered that question. <laughs> I'm happy to have the conversation <laughs> with anybody. If, yeah. p- if people wanted to reach out uh, to you, hear your podcast, how would they best do that? Yeah, so uh, they can look up questions from the closet on any podcast app. And they can email me at questionsfromthecloset at gmail.com. Ben Shalati is an honor code administrator, adjunct professor, author, and a podcaster. If you want to learn more, uh, be sure you check out Questions from the Closet. And you can also get his book, A Walk in My Shoes, Questions I'm Often Asked as a Gay Latter-day Saint. Ben, thanks for being on the show. Happy to be here. You're listening to The Lisa Show. Welcome to The Lisa Show. Richie, I got a hot take. Mm. Feeding a family yes. is a lot of work. It's yeah. <laughs> my hot take. You've said that. You have said that. And, and it, it I, do, I know. It doesn't seem like a really declarative statement, but I don't know anyone who doesn't go, oh, is it dinner again? I have to make dinner again every day. Mm. You know, people don't complain about brushing their teeth or, you know, washing their face the same way that mm-hmm. they do about like, oh, making dinner. It's expensive. Preparing, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of energy. It takes mental focus. And I have tried a lot of, I know, shocking systems Mm -hmm. over the years Mm. to make it a little bit easier. But I find myself, like many people, in need of a sort of constant or at least regular inspiration. You know, you got to mix things up. You can't have the same system, you know, like, oh, Monday is soup and Tuesday is chicken. Oh, I like soup Mondays and chicken Tuesdays. No, really, like I've tried a lot of different kinds of systems, but I I do feel like that there has to be this element of you need new ideas. And so knowing that most people are looking for either inspiration or new ideas, we thought we would reach out to Christine, the frugal fit mom, to share her best advice on making life just a little bit easier and maybe hopefully cheaper and healthier as well. I mean, I don't know. Is that asking too much, right? No, <laughs> for I don't think so. Preparing I meals. On it. I exactly. Insist. Welcome, Christine. Thanks for being here. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. So meal prepping can be a little intimidating and kind of complicated, but walk us through the way you do it. Uh, I would say I do it really differently than most people. And I think, Lisa, you hit the nail on the head when you talk about it takes too much mental energy, Mm -hmm. right? It's dinner time. You're exhausted. You've done all these other things. You've worked all day, helped the kids with the homework. Oh, my gosh, I can't believe I have to prepare a meal again, right? And we don't want to think about it, which is why I like to think about that sort of thing before it happens, if that makes sense. So, for example, let's say on Saturday – I have a few hours and I'm like looking at my muffin mixes in the pantry. I'm like, oh man, I could whip these up right now. We've got breakfast for a few days. Oh, sure. And in the morning when time is crunched and everyone's tired and you're like, what am I going to feed these kids again? It's already done. I love that. And how do you get into that sort of mindset though ahead of time? Um, I've had a lot of practice. (laughs) So I've been a mom for over 16 years now. So it's just, it's not something that happened right away. I've definitely been working on it over the last few years as my kids' lives get busier and busier with homework and sports and friends and, and all the things they do as they get ready to move out on their own. It just seems like time just wastes away. Like, I don't know where the time goes, but we're so busy all the time. <laughs> For me, breakfast is a disaster. Like, in our house, it's just complete mad chaos. <laughs> yeah. Probably because I like to work out in the morning, so I'm barely getting home in time for the kids to get ready and they can never find their shoes. I don't know why that is. <laughs> I know. What is like it? never it's put mystery. on shoes before. Right. I don't know. Yeah. yeah I, what are these? What do, where <laughs> do they go? I don't want to do that. It's so true. <laughs> That's really funny. So breakfast is a big one that I actually like to meal prep for, whether it's waffles or pancakes. They freeze really, really well. Breakfast burritos are a huge hit in my family. So I'll just batch cook it on a Saturday or Sunday 
when I have time to do it, wrap it all up. And I can do it in bulk. I can do a ton of it, freeze it all. And then they pull out whatever they want on whatever day and they can kind of be in charge of whatever they do. Okay, I it, like that autonomy. Is there also sort yeah, sort of that autonomy that that ownership of the kids depending on ages that that helps into this meal prep or should Absolutely. Yeah. I don't have young young kids anymore. Like my youngest is 9 and a half now. So they're all fully capable of saying, "Oh, well, here's all the stuff, you know, breakfast burritos. I want pancakes today." And they are fully responsible of doing all their own stuff. I, I, was, I, I think it's a, it's worth taking a pause right now in the conversation and being able to to really point out the benefits of doing this. Let's talk about the benefits financially of how this saves us money. Well, cooking in bulk is most of the time cheaper. Cooking from scratch is definitely going to be cheaper than buying, what, the 4 and $5 boxes of cereal all the time mm-hmm. and definitely healthier. Like you can't tell me that some eggs with – maybe a low-fat sausage or something, some whole wheat bread, is less healthy than a box of sugar cereal, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I know that lots of parents are looking just for inspiration. Like, help me decide, what are some of your favorite recipes, your go-tos that you can prep ahead? Oh, that is a great question. (laughs) If my (laughs) husband were here, he would tell you I don't have go-tos because, like, I'll make a dish and he loves it and I don't make it again for two months because I... (laughs) I really like variety, so I'm always doing new and different stuff, but here are a couple of ideas anyway. One thing is when you get back from your grocery shop, whatever day that happens to be, if you go ahead and prep your produce right away, like wash your broccoli, chop it all up so it's good to go. You save time the night of when it comes time to prep your salad or your fruit or anything like that. Like all that's done, all the prep work. Who likes chopping onions every day? They make me cry every time, no matter what trick I use. So I think that would be a good tip for people. Um, yeah, when it comes to <laughs> uh, go-tos, I don't, I truly don't. Well, have what a ton. are your most popular I... <laughs> recipes? Yeah, I'll go there. Husband says, "Oh, why don't you make this again? What is that that he likes?" <laughs> he he would tell you that he just likes food. I can tell you some of my kids' favorites. Uh, I have an 11 year old son who adores chicken pot pie, mm. like loves it. And it's a great one to clean out the fridge. Like, oh, these carrots that look very pretty sad. I'm just going to throw them in there. And, oh, I have these random green beans that I should probably use in something. Throw those in there, too. It's a great dish to just kind of clean out everything. And along with that, chili is probably a go-to. Oh, yeah, like homemade chili. chili. Mm-hmm. That's like a clean out, clean out the fridge, throw everything in the pot. And it usually tastes good. I like the idea of calling it a leftover pot pie. That sounds pretty good. Like, no, but you can't. You have to market it well, especially uh, when your kids get older. Oh, oh all right. Yeah. All right. You, all right. you can't. If you say leftovers. Pro, yeah. t- pro tip learned. <laughs> I got <laughs> it, ladies. I see a big red flag there. I got to oh, warn I, everyone. I have a hack for you to get over the leftover like word. Instead of that, you're just going to say you're going to have dinner in courses oh. tonight. Courses. That sounds fancy. That's really fun. Yeah. So you pull out the leftover, I don't know, macaroni, and you're like, okay, course one is going to be this cheesy pasta, you know. And everyone has a small amount. Course two is going to be meatloaf sandwiches with, I don't know, ketchup aioli or like make it sound fancy. (laughs) I love this. This is really cool. Yeah. And it's a small plate. We're just having tapas <laughs> just, like we're in Spain, well, everybody. Exactly. Yes. And, and I appreciate uh, Lisa shared something. This has been a little while ago on the show, but worth sharing with you, Christine, because we're, you know, we're all just chatting. We're just sharing our tips and tricks. Yeah. Uh, Lisa did a charcuterie uh, oh, yeah. leftovers where she Dinner. just mm-hmm. she just chucked the fridge onto a board and said, hey, There's some meats and some cheeses yeah, just and whatever. some breads and, and whatever. But it wasn't all yeah. just typical charcuterie stuff. You're just like, eh, eat something off of a board. Yeah. And the kids. Right. Eat it up. I love it. It's great. You just put <laughs> it on one plate. For pronouncing it right. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> thank it, you. It looks intentional if you yeah. just put it on a pretty platter. <laughs> it does. I should start calling it that. I've been calling it pickety bit because oh, my, my kids think it's funny because you just pick at the bits on the plate. Oh my <laughs> gosh, that's sounds funny. a lot fancier. Well, you know, you, you got to stay up with the current trends. Yeah. Kids, kids right, hear right. stuff. Yeah. You, you want you want to be up with that. Our you know, there are some foods that will sort of uh, freeze better than others when you're trying to, like, prep. Like, let's say that you have a day where you get a, buy a ton of stuff in bulk and you're just feeling in the mood to prep it and, you know, chop up those vegetables or those kinds of things. Which do you find of the foods to freeze ahead of time work the best? 
Uh, you can freeze a lot more than you'd think. Uh, I do a lot of videos on my YouTube channel about clearance shopping and then freezing them for later so they extend well out past their expiration dates. Things like yogurt and breads and meats, obviously, cheeses, cream cheeses, all of these are so freezable. Um, you can freeze yogurt? Oh, absolutely. I didn't know As that. in frozen yogurt, no, Lisa? No, I As know, in- but like when it, when, but you eat frozen yogurt frozen, can you re, not heat it, but just like let it come to room no, temperature? No, you can thaw it in the refrigerator. The texture might be slightly different. I actually like eating it kind of frozen because it kind huh. of, turns, it takes you longer to eat it and it tastes really sweet like it's a treat, you know? That's a good point. I'd never thought of yeah. that. I've never heard the of this frozen yogurt. <laughs> it's, diff- it's different at TCBY than it is in my own freezer. It's not going to be yeah, as creamy. It's not going to taste like Kiwi Loco, but... Yeah, come on. Okay. All right, uh, all right. you want to avoid are super, super high water content foods. So watermelon is going to turn into a soupy mess. Lettuce, that's a no-go. Cucumbers, no, right? Those kind of things you want to avoid. And if you want to freeze, I mean, if you're not buying frozen vegetables and you want to freeze the vegetables, typically if you blanch it and then cool it off, it'll work perfectly. Um, So what I mean by blanch, for those that don't know, is you just throw it into boiling water for like a minute or two and then put it into an ice bath to cool it. And that's what they do with frozen vegetables anyway, like frozen green beans, frozen corn. Hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, all these things are things that you teach on your YouTube channel? Absolutely. Tell people where they can find and, and the kind of stuff, c- c- consistency of which you uh, share things and, and and why you're a great follow, because you are. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, my YouTube channel is called Frugal Fit Mom. I post a minimum of three days a week, and I do a wide variety of things like how to clearance shop, like save money on your groceries, things that you should not be buying at certain stores because they're a waste of money and obviously meal prepping for a family, cooking crop pot meals, freezer meals, clean out the fridge meal ideas all awesome. over my channel. Oh, thank you so much, Christine. I, w- I want to share an idea just in sort of closing here. This is not necessarily a meal prep, but it's a thing that I found myself doing recently, and yeah. it sort of reinvented the dinner time. So the grocery store is right on my way home. And if I don't have, because I'm in charge of the dinners in yeah. our house, uh, if we if I have not thought, oh, this is what we'll have for dinner, I'll stop by the meat section uh, and go to the this meat better be cooked today <laughs> part of the meat section. Typically, it's like 75% off, and I'll grab something from that, and then I'll just sort of focus the meal around that. And so it's sort of fun because it's like being on a cooking show. It's like, it's like a prize bag. Yeah, I don't know what the meat is going to be today. Let's see what I can make around this. And 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 so maybe for those that have a little bit more time, but it's, it certainly has sort of reinvented the huh. dinner time. Just throwing it out there. I feel like everyone else got to share a tip, so I wanted to. <laughs> yep, I love it. I, I preach that on my channel, absolutely. Uh, Christine from Frugal Fit Mom. You can find her on Instagram at FrugalFitMom6, or you can find her over on the YouTube. It's Frugal Fit Mom. Thanks for being on the show. While sometimes we throw around the term like narcissist for obnoxious behavior, it is a real condition. Mm -hmm. And narcissistic personality disorder is medically defined as when a person has an inflated sense of self-importance. Narcissism can, without help, can really lead to not just damaging whoever's struggling, but those around them. And the hard part is many people don't realize their partner is even a narcissist. Well, today we'll be talking with licensed marriage and family therapist Darlene Lancer about the abuser of narcissistic behavior. And she's an expert author on relationships and codependency, having written books like Codependency for Dummies and Dealing with a Narcissist. Uh, Welcome, Darlene. Thank you for being here. Oh, I appreciate the opportunity to educate your audience. So thank you. Well, I uh, appreciate you being willing to be here. And and when we talk about narcissism and this inflated sense of self, I, I you know we throw a lot of terms around. And and I thought maybe we could begin by talking about some of the false stereotypes that uh, of narcissists that that should be addressed before we we get into their relationship with other people. Oh, that's a good idea. Um, some people think that because their their partner brags a lot or because they are selfish that's like a key key word that they they must be narcissistic well there's a lot more to the personality disorder than someone who's selfish 
or brag. Someone just might be insecure and they brag a lot or self-centered. And also, if they lack, seem to lack empathy, that's not necessarily uh, a narcissist. There are a lot of other reasons why a person may not be empathetic. So there are a number of characteristics that a person has to have. Lack of empathy is one of them and a grandiose sense of self. But there's, you need like five of nine characteristics to qualify for having a personality disorder. So it's more than that. And when we're talking about narcissism and, and, and a diagnosis, is that something that has to be done through a psychologist or a psychiatrist? Well, a marriage and family therapist can also do that, but it should be a professional. And, and, and so uh, to me, it, as we are engaging with those that we think might be narcissistic, I think it's a long haul to be like, hey, come with me to a therapist. Yeah. I want to find out if you're narcissistic or have narcissism. Well, one of the things you should not do is label a narcissist. If it is a narcissist, uh, labeling is going to be counterproductive because they're going to go on the attack. And the one thing that narcissists do is they will never take responsibility for anything because underneath all of their braggadocio is a very fragile ego. So they're very, uh, very much motivated to never let anything crack their armor. (laughs) They have this facade of being perfect because... They think they have to be perfect to compensate for the inadequacy and shame that's underneath. And so they can never take responsibility and they will go on the attack, maybe call you a narcissist or blame you for something. It's not going to be effective. And usually they're not interested in therapy, uh, couples therapy or individual therapy, because they don't want to reveal themselves. It doesn't seem like a... very attractive trait. Why are people attracted to narcissists? Well, it's interesting that they have a lot of charisma usually, and they're very good at managing other people, psyching them out, and using certain uh, skills that they have to attract people. For instance, uh, praise them, seduce them, flatter them, they, that's one of their first um, first tactics to draw people to them because they want people to like them. But some research has shown that it might take seven visits with the person before you start to see who they are mm-hmm. and not like them. They did research and they people interviewed with narcissists and generally they liked the person until around the seventh meeting and then they started to dislike the person. So it takes a while for you to be able to uh, see through the veneer of uh, how charming they are. So they do a lot of, it's what's called impression management, Hmm. to to gain uh, status with someone and to make you like them. They have good conversational skills. They can, might be very witty. They promote themselves, they boast, they brag, and people are drawn to that. Why do some narcissists go undetected? Well, because they're so charming and they, they, uh, they're skilled at knowing like your weaknesses or how you're going to, um, what you're going to respond to. Sometimes they will mirror you. You like, uh, you go on a date with them and you like certain food or certain uh, interest and they might mirror that and say, oh, that's exactly the same thing I like. And they'll try to manage you that way. And the other thing is they generally avoid too much intimacy or situations where they're not going to shine. Mm-hmm. Like they prefer uh, hierarchical environments where they can rise to the top rather than where they're going to be equal, a setting that's uh, where they can't get status, where it's frowned upon, where they're supposed to um, have teamwork. Uh, 
they rather be in a competitive environment where mm-hmm. they can uh, be better than someone else. So, and they're always scanning the surroundings and other people to see where do I stand? Am I one up on someone? Am I one down? And then they have to correct for that. So they're very hypervigilant to their status and how to influence people, how to get attention, how to get praise relative to the competition. So if they go into a room, they want to, you know, scan them. Who, who is the competitor there? How can they look good? Who can they impress? They're constantly thinking that way, like very political and, and what their status is. Early in this discussion, you talked about the danger of labeling uh, someone narcissistic. I want to take that a little bit further out in the conversation. Uh, within just our every day to day, we would say, "Oh, you're such a narcissist. You're being narcissistic." You know, we yeah, sort of throw that that term around. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you feel like is the danger in that sort of speak? Well, first of all, if you're criticizing someone, you're not going to. Um, it's not going to be effective for your relationship Mm -hmm. to label someone. It's actually considered uh, invasive because now you're labeling them and telling them who they are. Mm -hmm. So that in itself can be considered abusive. Um, But there's something called narcissistic traits or narcissistic tendencies And that's not a full-blown personality disorder. But if you want to improve the relationships, it's it's going to be more effective if you say, you know, I'm feeling like I don't matter in the relationship or I feel like my needs don't matter to you. And then that's being more assertive rather than starting off with you this or you that and letting the person know how you feel and take responsibility for your own feelings rather than labeling them. Maybe you didn't communicate what you needed. And a lot of times people uh, think the other person should read their mind, that they shouldn't have to express their needs and wants, and then they feel um, not heard or not valued, but they never let the other person know exactly what they need and want. Darlene Lancer, a licensed marriage and family therapist, an expert author on relationships and also codependency. You can learn more about her work by going to whatiscodependency.com. Darlene, thanks for being with us. Thank you for listening to The Lisa Show. We'll be right back. Welcome to The Lisa Show. New research in The Origins of You that studied over 4,000 families found that being a good neighbor would improve your parenting and supports child development. Now, knowing that our relationship with our neighbor could impact our family in such a big way and knowing how divided many of us are culturally and politically, I think we could all use some tips on how to become friendlier neighbors. So what makes a good neighbor? Think about a time where you had a really good neighbor or maybe a bad neighbor at what point do we cross that line between friendly neighbor and intrusive neighbor? And here to answer all of our questions is Dr. Elaine Swan, an etiquette expert to discuss how to connect our communities so that we can get all those benefits that found that the support to our children's development and our parenting, we can really get the benefits from them. Thank you for being here, Dr. Swan. It's my absolute pleasure. Okay, so I think in our minds, are, we're racing and we're trying to think, okay, well, what is it that makes a good neighbor? What's your perspective on that? Well, the key, uh, uh, the thing that makes a good neighbor is to uh, be neighborly. And, and when we think about that kind of almost from the biblical sense of the word, mm-hmm. it, it really is thinking about your fellow man uh, and, and, and treating them with kindness, with cat compassion, and with respect. And you can do that in a variety of ways. It doesn't matter uh, whether you uh, live in a, in a house or a townhome or even an apartment complex or an apartment building. You can still be neighborly. You can still treat people with kindness, with uh, compassion, and also respect. And so those are the core values mm-hmm. that, that, that uh, we share often. You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking back to how I feel like my mom was such a good neighbor. She knew who 
you know, who we lived next to. She thought about them on holidays. She just checked in on them. And, and I'm, I'm wondering how, how far we can take that and what kinds of considerations maybe we should have now that we, that we have maybe all gotten out of the habit of doing. Yeah, and that's the thing. So many of us have gotten out of the habit. You know, we we arrive home, we pull into our driveways and go straight, uh, pull straight into the garage and go into the house. Yeah, maybe a friendly wave, maybe a nod, but maybe not. Yeah, exactly. You know, a wave, a nod, good morning. You know, we're out, we're walking our dogs. It doesn't take much to just look up at the person, look them in the eye and smile and say hello. Now, we can dig a little bit deeper, I believe, and and try to make sure that we're really looking out for individuals. You know, sometimes we have, you know, neighbors who maybe live alone. There might be a person who's elderly or or either a family Mm -hmm. who Mm -hmm. may have, you know, children that have medical conditions or so forth. And so, you know, it's neighborly for us to be on the lookout for individuals just to be sure that they're okay. For example, if you see someone that walks their dog all the time in the morning or in the evening at a certain time and you just don't see them anymore, if you know where they live, it it won't hurt to either walk by their home or even knock on the door and say, hey, I hadn't seen you in a while. Just thought I would check in on you and make sure everything was okay. Oh, wow. It's that sort of thing that we have to do so that we can uh, protect one another and also uh, fill that void that some people uh, tend to have. You know, I have to interject here and say that I have some really wonderful neighbors and my husband was in a wheelchair for many years and I had some neighbors that I didn't know very well come over and knock on my door and just say, hey, I I know you guys are having a difficult, you know, kind of time and, and I see that your husband is in a wheelchair and that you're making some home adaptations. Hey, I just wanted to let you know that if you ever need any help, I'm right there. Like it and and the fact that they went out of their way to offer specific like help like that of like hey if he ever falls and you need someone to to help you assist him get getting back up or if you need any help um with with your ramp or or you know with other equipment i'm here and i'd love to help boy that that meant a lot to me I'm sure it did. I'm I'm sure it went a long way. You know, the thing here, Lisa, is we just have to put forth a greater effort to be more observant. For example, if you see flowers arriving at someone's house constantly uh, over a very short period of time, more often than not, you'll know that 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 could possibly represent uh, a sickness or, or death in the family. And so it's those sorts of cues that we can look out for, or pink, or, or you might even see pink <laughs> balloons right. or, or blue balloons. You know. For our next-door neighbor, uh, one indication that, that we had that they had a brand-new baby, which we were, I was so shocked because we <laughs> did, I didn't even realize that mom was expecting. Uh, somehow that just got past us, you know. But all of a sudden we saw these, you know, balloons uh, hanging outside, and I thought, oh, my goodness. So we, of course, uh, went over right away and congratulated them and then, of course, sent over a gift later on. But it's those little things that we can do to look out for. And, you know, I really mm-hmm. want to make sure that we're, we're also letting folks know People who live in apartment complexes or apartment buildings, you know, you just you don't always have that great vantage point. You pretty much just sure. see the front door of someone else. And and but this is where we pay attention to those walk bys uh, or, or or dog walking moments if you if pets are allowed in the building. You know, just anything different. You see something sitting outside their door. Maybe it's there for a long time. It's just we have to pay attention. We have to slow down just a little bit and pay attention. It's it's really a, a very strong wrong biblical principle, which is to care for our fellow man. Yeah. For those who are listening and thinking, oh, you know what? I've gotten out of the habit of doing that. Or I've lived in my place too long, but I kind of want to just get to know my neighbors, but I feel awkward doing so. What advice do you have for them to reconnect? Oh, I think one really great thing is just ask the person's name, you know, just say, you know what, I see you so often, we always nod or say hello, but I really don't know your name. What's your name? So now, you know, when you see that person, you can call them by their first name. I would say that uh, perhaps you might have something in common. You have, uh, you know, maybe they have a pet 
or they have children or maybe similar cars or something like that. But this is where you can just say, hey, you know, we see each other all the time, and I haven't stopped to say hello. How are you doing today? It really, that that moment right there can really break the ice, and, and, and you never know the impact that it might have on that person's day. You know, it's, it's this, in this day and time, the connection that we have with other people is vital to our well-being. And so anything that we can do to break that ice and open that moment for conversation is a good thing and can lead us in a great direction. What advice do you have for those who kind of struggle to get along with their neighbors? Maybe there's been an issue before, like noise or a pet or something, I don't know. And maybe there haven't been just exclusively positive interactions. How do you suggest that we turn that around? Well, there's two things you can do. Number one, uh, if let's say, for example, the noise was a factor and you call the police on them or they call the police on you or what have you, if, and maybe because you were having a, um, a gathering. The next time you have a gathering, uh, include your neighbor in two ways. You can go to them and say, hey, I just want to let you know that we are going to be having a gathering. Uh, I, I want to give you my contact information here's my phone number so you can call me directly i don't want to disturb you so here's my direct number so you can call me and let me know and we'll make sure that we pay attention to it the other thing you can do is to start to break the 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 uh, breakdown that 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 wall that's up between the two of you with everything along the lines from a glance a look a nod of the head a wave, just start to do those sorts of things until over time that turns into a hello or how are you doing today. But just allow uh, some time and and space kind of in between that, put a bridge in between it, and it can just start with very simple gestures that will eventually turn into a hello, and then that hello can turn into a conversation. And you never know (laughs) what a person may or may not have been going through during the time that you all had a bit of conflict. Now, Dr. Swan, you are are known for founding the Swan School of Protocol, and as an etiquette expert, you've really given us some really great advice on how to, to interact with our neighbors and, and, and to become more well acquainted. But now I'd like to turn our conversation to really the benefits that we talked about at the beginning of the conversation that it can have for our for our kids and our parenting. So Elaine Swan, as a etiquette specialist and a public figure, you know, you you are really a great person to talk to about how to have good manners, really, with our neighbors in in lots of different situations. But I'd love to turn our attention and the conversation towards how how this impacts our kids and our parenting skills. It really does have a very, very uh, profound impact on our children, their well-being, and and how they see the world itself. And it and, and it and it most certainly uh, carves out a, a path for our parenting skills. And what I mean by that is that uh, we, our children have to see us uh, behaving kindly towards others. It teaches them how to be proper citizens in the world. The way we behave in the presence of our children has an impact on how they show up in the world as citizens. We cannot tell our children to be nice while we're being nasty towards our neighbors. We cannot tell our children to respect other people, whether it's ourselves, their siblings, their, their teachers, uh, their you know, extended family members, when they witness us being rude and disrespectful or, or, uh, or even uh, confrontational towards our neighbors. And so this is where our ch- we have to keep in mind that as our children are watching us, as they are growing, uh, they are taking note of who we are as parenting. And so we have to recognize that our parenting skills not only come from what we say, but those skills and, and the teachings come from our children observing what we do. Yeah, our actions being louder than our words. Just Absolutely, to... yes, indeed. Yeah, uh, you, you know, sometimes when we think we're being a good neighbor, we may inadvertently offend someone else, you know, an act of service that one person 
person considers kind and generous may not be for someone else. Like, you know, I I remember one of my neighbors years ago, um, some kids in the neighborhood thought it would be really great to mow her lawn and, you know, rake up the leaves. They didn't know that she wanted to have those leaves down and mulch because she was planting something else like a a vine. And so she came out saying, no, please don't. (laughs) And it ended up being this big uh, misunderstanding. How can we avoid situations like that and still do spontaneous acts of service? Oh, gosh, poor thing. I know. They probably felt she was so vi- proud of what they had done. <laughs> and she was so generous well, you know, about it. She really was. But it, a mishap. But yeah. one of the ways to avoid uh, that sort of thing is to ask first. You know, uh, whether you knock on the door or leave a note on the door and, and you can say, hey, you know, um, little Bobby can leave a note or mom or dad can leave a note or, or check with the person and say this is what they're thinking of doing. Is it all right with you? And that's one thing we always have to make sure that whenever we, we do, you know, um, um, you know, assist a person in some way, form or fashion, if you don't have the full story and you've kind of created a narrative in your own head, check with the person first. So just ask them and see if it's all right with them. And and if you do happen to do something, maybe you see the flowers being delivered at, at the house and you're thinking, oh, my goodness, there must have been sickness or death in the family, and you go to the house thinking that and come to find out, really, they were just being showered right. <laughs> in love by someone else. Uh, just simply apologize and, and, and uh, let them know that you're glad it all is well and then uh, move on. For those who are listening who are maybe a little cynical or just didn't grow up or live in neighborhoods where you knew your neighbors or you talked to them, what is the benefit of going out of your way to be a really good neighbor? The benefit of going out of your way to be a really good neighbor is to allow yourself to be accessible and uh, comforting in someone else's time of need. You know, too often we think about how things can benefit ourselves, but just, you know, really think that uh, the age-old saying of do unto others as you would have them to do unto you is really, really a, a core value that we should adopt and have as part of our lifestyle. Imagine being in your house and, you know, perhaps, unfortunately, there's some sort of accident uh, and, and it's your neighbor that, that happened to check in on you to, to make sure you were okay. Or even think about uh, um, the, 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 the loneliness that someone else might be experiencing or the turmoil that someone else might be experiencing. We cannot walk through this life only thinking about ourselves and our own families. It's so important for us to get out of our own head and out of our own home and really show kindness and care and compassion towards others. It's a vital principle in the circle of life is to look out for each other. I mean, even the animals do it. We can sit and watch Animal Kingdom and we see the animals looking out for one another. So as human beings, we should do the same for each other. Thank you so much for being here today, Elaine Swan. It was my absolute pleasure. Elaine Swan's the author of the book, Let Crazy Be Crazy, and is currently working to train others to become certified etiquette consultants. For more information, you can visit swanschoolofprotocol.com or elaineswan.com. Thank you so much for your time. Have you downloaded the BYU Radio app yet? If not, it's free, available in whatever application store you use. Thank you for listening to The Lisa Show.